Good morning, Crosswalk. How are we doing? We good? Good to see you. Good to see. Oh, what's it? Where'd Landon? Oh, he has to give story. Yeah, I always like when Landon's in the front row because he really like yells at me and stuff, which is, which is fun. I appreciate it. Um, no, great to have you guys here. Hope you all had a good week. Uh, and I know I, I had a. I had a traumatic week, I'll tell you that. My, my children are working up at summer camp in Idaho, uh, you know, where COVID doesn't exist. And um, no, that's nothing to do with COVID, the story. Um, but uh, there was some boy who gave my daughter cookies this week. And that's not an innuendo of any kind. It's just like, like literally gave her cookies. But I think he did it with intention. So it's, yeah, yeah, thank you. Pray for me, pray for me. Um, I'll be up there in a few weeks to be camp pastor for, for the week, um, and uh, I'm going to find out about this boy. I told my daughter I need his social security number, any other pertinent information so I can do my homework. Uh, anyway, so uh, that's the kind of week we've had. Um, and if you are a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Faith Tribe, uh, you'll know that uh, next week is camp meeting. Uh, a big time for uh, our faith tribe and a chance to gather and, and, you know, programming for all ages, all this kind of stuff. Um, some of us are, are forced, I mean, uh, have to be there. <laughs> uh, no, and uh, anyway, but uh, people ask if we'll still be having church next weekend. The answer is yes, we'll still be having church next weekend. We'll be here, so please feel free to join us for that. I also want to give a shout out today. Um, to our two newest team members of the Crosswalk Portland pastoral staff. One of them is, uh, well, technically started last week, but Uriel, I think, is in the back, Pastor Uriel, um, who is going to be working our youth and young adult area. So we call that the walk and future of. That's junior high, high school, and then collegiate young adult. Um, and then is Lydia still in the room? Oh, yeah, she's right there. Pastor Lydia is here with us as well. And she is starting off today. Um, and then she has to devote her life to eight and nine-year-olds at camp meeting next week. Uh, so pray for her especially. Uh, and then uh, she'll be full on with us. So she is going to be doing outreach, assessing our community needs and how we can impact and serve our community really well. And helping you get to know how you're gifted to participate in that. Um, as well as being a part of some of our community building and things we do here. So we are super excited to have both of them on board and joining our already incredible and awesome leadership team. So we just, we just have tons of good things in store, and God is moving in our community. So thanks for being here and being a part of it. Uh, we are in week two of our Deep Faith series, where we are looking at the letters that Paul wrote to his protege, his child of the faith, Timothy. And as I talked about last week, Timothy is dear to Paul. He is someone that Paul has invested at this point 20 years of his life into Timothy. And 1 Timothy, he's writing, Paul's writing from Macedonia to Ephesus where they have planted a church and where Timothy is trying to help that church through some tough times and get them back onto the scriptures and the gospel story. Um, but Paul is also trying to help Timothy deepen his faith because Paul knows that his time is going to come to a close at some point. 2 Timothy is actually his last letter that he wrote. And so he's trying to make sure Timothy is ready to weather the storms and is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ. Uh, so on the surface, we'll read through some things where Paul is giving instructions for how to lead church um, and how to grow church in the gospel story. But underneath that, 
I believe Paul is trying to help Timothy be ready for when he's gone. Um, and so that's where we start off with. But I have to warn you that as last week, you know, we talked about the principles of deep faith. This week, as we search for deep connections, we're going to talk about the building blocks, the first one for that. But we're going to go through some slightly controversial uh, passages in this text that talk about women and what women should and shouldn't do in church. So brace yourselves for that conversation. Um, but we're going to start off by looking at what does deep connections mean from Forbes to psychology today, to men and women's health, to even Dr. Phil. All of them say that if you want to build trust in a relationship, then you need communication. It's essential. You have to get to know the other person. The other person has to get to know you. And without communication, there can be no trust. This happens in our human relationships as well as our divine relationships. Quick example of that. I had a friend of mine who grew up as an Adventist, um, and became a pastor, went through some struggles, went through some doubts, and decided that he was going to spend a year without God. No communication, no connection, no worship, no study, nothing. And at the end of that year, when he came back to evaluate where he was with God, you can imagine, he didn't have a relationship with God anymore, and he had lost his faith. But imagine that in the context of our human relationships. If I went to my wife and said, Trisha, look, you know, let's take this next year off. So, like, no communication, no text messages, no Facebook posts, nothing. I just want to see what would happen. My guess is at the end of that year, things wouldn't be in such good shape. Um, whoa, hello, everyone. Um, <laughs> so... Today, we're going to walk through 1 Timothy 2 to see what Paul has to say about our search for deep connections. So, again, chapter 1, the, the principles and building blocks to growing a deep faith. Chapter 2, he gets into a building block for that. So, here we go. 1 Timothy 2, 1. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is, a, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. And I have been chosen as a preacher an apostle to teach the Gentiles this message about faith and truth. I'm not exaggerating, just telling the truth. So Paul begins by instructing Timothy to pray, to intercede for others, to give thanks for them, to pray for kings and those in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. We'll see that theme as we continue on and talks about elders and deacons. But what is prayer and how does it help us develop a deep faith? Well, in, on the surface, we often under pray, understand prayer as communication between us and God, a two-way conversation. But if I've learned anything about prayer, it's that it's easy to talk about, incredibly hard to practice at times, right? And for some of us that have grown up in a faith tradition, it's probably been assumed that over the years you figured out how to pray and pray really well. Even though when you're gathered at, uh, for, if, you know, dinner, before you pray to bless the dinner, especially if it's Sabbath afternoon lunch, 
Everybody looks around to see if there's a pastor in the room who can pray. Because the pastor knows, right? Um, But uh, I, I think for a lot, it's been taken for granted that we just automatically know how to pray and what to say and how this works. Um, but instead, it's something we need, I think we need to talk more about, be vulnerable about, share what we've learned, ask our questions, and wrestle together with how to better connect with God. One thing is for sure, Scripture is replete with prayer. Dr. John Dibdahl says in his book, Hunger, that Scripture has no less than 650 prayers. Some of those prayers are sung. Some of those prayers are cried out from the inner depths of our being. Some of those prayers are prayed by people who don't know what they want or what they need, but they're reaching out for God. But if we knew nothing else about prayer other than the fact that Jesus spent much time in prayer, was regularly found in prayer, that would be enough. And I think in this passage, we can find some helpful um, tools, answers to our questions about prayer that Paul gives us, just with a little bit of digging. So first of all, Paul uses the word intercede or intercession in relationship to prayer. In the Greek, it is the word intuxis, which marks an intersection between heaven and earth, which is cool in and of itself. So whenever we pray, heaven and earth touch. But then it goes on to suggest that the purpose of intercession in Tuxis is to help ourselves or others be more in line with God's will for our lives. So then the big question becomes, what is God's will? Well, the word for will is actually the word desire. So we can ask, what is God's desire for our lives? And if you're anything like me, I used to think that God's will for my life was a specific set of plans. That God wants me to do this, then this, then this, then this, then this. The only problem with that is, what happens when I don't follow his specific plans? Is there God's will plan A, plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I? Like, you get the picture. I'm, if that's the case, then I'm on like quadruple W um, by now. And, and if that's the case, if I've gone off of plan A, do I have to spend my life trying to get back to plan A? Um, You know, is that what it's about? Well, I came across in one of my studies, a point in my life, a few verses that I think help me understand God's will a little bit better. And I'll give you one of those. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. It says this, Always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. So in this passage, God's will is that we'd be joyful We'd be in continual communication with him, which leads us to thankfulness. So it seems that God's will is that we'd be in relationship with him, no matter our circumstances. Because when we're in relationship with God, as Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things will be added unto you. So God's will is that we would be in relationship with him. And the more we learn to live our lives with God, the more human we become. Author James Smith once wrote, to be truly and fully human, we need to find ourselves in relationship to the one who made us and for whom we are made. And one of my favorite things about prayer is this, that when we pray, we are never alone. Dallas Willard wrote, God is able to penetrate and intertwine himself within the fibers of the human self in such a way that those who are enveloped in his loving companionship will never be alone. So how does God accomplish this in prayer? According to the scripture, 
whenever we pray, there are actually four parties involved in our prayer. Um, so first, there is the prayer. That would be us. And if you're anything like me, there are more times than not that you struggle to know what to pray, how to pray, what needs said or what doesn't need said. I've been practicing prayer for most of my life, and I still feel like an amateur. But God, in all his graciousness, tells us elsewhere through Paul that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we do not know, uh, we do not know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. That's Romans 8, 26. So when we pray, the Holy Spirit the second, is the second member engaged with us in prayer and is praying with us and for us is, and is taking our words or our emotions, our feelings, our groanings, and he's making it something that God can understand or, or really is praying for the things that we don't even know we need. Um, and, and so the Holy Spirit is involved. So what does God do as we pray and the Holy Spirit intercedes? Well, David once said, but God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. So this amazing God of ours has his Holy Spirit interceding as we pray. He pays attention. He listens. So he's the third party involved. But that's not all. Because Paul goes on to say in Romans 8 that Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. So every time we pray, heaven and earth touch and all three members of the trinity are involved in praying with us is that not amazing and and paul goes on to tell us why this happens in this passage in first timothy he says god our savior wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth god wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth it's a lot easier to talk to somebody that you know is on your side rooting for you cheering for you to be the person he sees when he looks at you, Paul said elsewhere, if God is for us, who can be against us? Peter once said, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. God is on our side. We serve a God that is not trying to destroy us, but is actually trying to do everything possible to save us. He won't force us. We have to accept it, but he's doing everything. And that's a fundamental difference between how people see their faith. Is God for us or is God against us? Is God trying to keep us out of heaven or is God trying to keep us into heaven? I think God's trying to keep us, get us in. God is a God who is on our side. He is for us. And it's that kind of God that I can pour my heart out to. But then we get into the second half of this chapter, which has gotten many upset over the years, especially when we take Paul's words at face value without learning their context. My hope is that once we deal with the surface level issues, that we can learn a lot about our posture for prayer in the second half of this chapter. But let's read on and try to not let our blood pressure go up too much. Here we go. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy, and I want women to be modest in their appearance. They should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not draw attention to themselves by the way they fix their hair or by wearing gold or pearls or expensive clothes. 
For women who claim to be devoted to God should make themselves attractive by the good things they do. Women should learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have a third authority over them. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first and afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. <laughs> the woman was deceived and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing. Thank goodness. Assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Thanks for coming today. <laughs> ah, funny and true. Okay. So hopefully no one walked out. I think we blocked the doors. Um, so first, let's deal uh, with the text and how it's been used by some. Because this uh, text has been used to argue for male, theo male headship theology. That the male is in charge and the woman is to be subservient. The text has been used to argue for women not serving as elders or deacons or leaders in the church, as well as the reasons why we shouldn't treat women as equals and ordain them as ministers called by God. But there's a problem. Uh, when we argue these uh, texts that way, we are ignoring a whole lot of other scriptures where women are affirmed for their roles as leaders, including affirmations of women given by Paul. Like when Paul says that in Christ, all are equal in Galatians 3.28. Or where women were expected to prophesy and pray in the assembly in 1 Corinthians 11. Or where women were apostles and deacons as listed in Romans 16. It doesn't take into account that when God created human beings, he created us in his image. Male and female he created us, which means it takes men and women to reflect the full image of God. Therefore, it takes both male and female to reflect God's image. And it doesn't take into account the ministry of Jesus that was gender inclusive. Male, uh, yeah, oh, I'm all over the place. Um, gender inclusive. Uh, and one of those places is when Jesus was at the home of Martha and Mary. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to what he had to say. That was the position of a disciple, something women weren't allowed to do in that culture. And yet Jesus says that Mary had chosen the right thing and no one could take it away from her. Not to mention the fact that when Jesus ascended to heaven and gave his followers the great commission, there were men and women gathered on that hill, and to both he said, go and make disciples. So, if that's all true, what in the world was happening in Ephesus that Paul wrote these words? Well, at the time Paul wrote, the largest cult with the biggest shrine in Ephesus was a shrine to the god goddess Artemis, otherwise known in, to the Romans as Diana. This was a cult of females only, and the females were abusive to the men in this cult. And that was the biggest thing going on in Ephesus. So what I think Paul was trying to speak to was a specific situation and trying to right-size things a bit. And so we have to look at everything in Scripture through its historical context instead of just taking it at face value. We have to dig deeper, deeper and see. And throughout Scripture, women are so critical to the gospel story. So, not, let's, let's also remember that, that you know, I, I've said this before about Easter, but who was the first person that Jesus appeared to when he was resurrected? Mary, right? 
and in that culture, people would talk about, oh, the story was made up, right? The whole resurrection thing was made up. But in that culture, if you wanted to make up a story, you wouldn't have included women as the main characters in the story. And yet Mary is the main character in that story because it matters. So what does that have then? If we peel away that layer, what can we learn from this second half of the passage? It has to do with the posture of prayer. First of all, Paul talks briefly about the external posture, hands lifted up, right? We know there are many different postures for prayer, kneeling, prostrate, standing, hands up, hands down, folded. Author Ellen White said, there is no time or place in which it is inappropriate to offer up a petition to God. There's no time or place where it's inappropriate to offer a petition to God. But then Paul moves from the external posture to the internal one and spends the rest of the chapter on this topic. He says that we should be free from anger and controversy when we pray. He also says we should consider our character and be modest, thinking about what we wear, how we dress, and whether those things are causing us or those around us to be distracted. To any and all of this, I think it helps to consider a model for communication that has helped me in my prayer life over the years. For those of you that don't know, I was a double major in college. I majored in religion and speech communications, and I don't often tell people that I majored in speech communications because then I fear you would expect me to be a better preacher. So... Today it applies, though. In almost every Speech 101 class, you're going to learn the model of communication, and I think it gives us a secret about the prayer life that is important. So the communication model goes something like this. With every communication that you send, there is a sender of the message and a receiver. But the receiver is also a sender of a message that goes back to the sender, who's also a receiver. This reverse process is things like nonverbal cues and head nodding and things like that. Um, so that's your general communication model. But then there's something that get, get in the way of the communication process, which is called noise. Noise is anything that can distract you from receiving the message. Okay, And noise can be external. It can be things like a bad lisp, or it can be things like a heavy accent, or uh, one of the things that's one of my biggest challenges is that I'm up front and my zipper is down. That's something that, that, that the McCoys have had to deal with a few times here and there. These things can be distracting. In fact, uh, I was preaching at a church in Seattle once, um, and uh, my <laughs> I'm, I'm going along, and then I look out, and I see my beautiful wife out in the audience, and she's going like this. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know what this is. We haven't talked about this. And so I assume that it's the zipper thing. So they had a pulpit, and I got behind the pulpit, and I checked. It wasn't the zipper. So then I had noise inside my brain for the rest of the sermon because I couldn't figure out what in the world this was. Turns out this meant slow down. <laughs> slow down. You're going too fast. And ever since that day, Trisha and I no longer have hand signals <laughs> that we send to each other in the message. Yeah, no, it's out. So noise can be external, but noise can also be internal, right? And we know this. We get into a serious conversation with a loved one, but we've got a big test the next day or something big at work, and all we can think about is that. So someone's talking to us, but we're distracted. We have noise. Or something is going on internally. Maybe, you know what it's like when it, with a couple? And it, why is it that you, you wait till 1130 to have a good conversation? 1130 at night. It's like, I'm going to go to bed. Really? Do you know what you did today? 
like, <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know what that's like. I'm, I'm, I've read about it. <laughs> I was just thinking about you guys. <laughs> uh, you know, so like, why does that happen, right? So it's internal noise that distracts us and keeps us from hearing the message. Um, so uh, this noise um, that keeps us from hearing God speak is the noise that I think Paul is addressing and that noise can be external. Maybe our room is a mess and we can't find a place to pray. Maybe our roommates are playing Super Smash Brothers in the next room and we can't hear ourselves speak, let alone God. But maybe the noise is eternal, internal, not eternal. <laughs> maybe you're really worried about something and it's consuming your thoughts or you're hurt over a betrayal from a friend or you're so busy you can't see straight. Paul's point is that we must deal with the noise. And it's not just Paul. Jesus once said, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. We have got to deal with and acknowledge our sources of noise so we are better positioned to hear from God and experience his presence in our lives. The less noise, the better the connection. In verse 11, Paul says we need to learn quietly and submissively and I will be honest that this is the hardest aspect for me in prayer. I've shared with you before, I'm the youngest of three brothers. As the youngest, we crave attention. We learn to talk all the time. Thus, the fact that I'm up here preaching to you today. Um, but um, because of all the talking, there are times when I need to be quiet. I need to be still and listen, but that's hard for me. So there are times when I've just got to get everything out. I've got to say everything on my heart, on my mind, and then when I'm finally done talking, that's when I feel like the real prayer begins. That's why God gave us, right, two ears, one mouth, so that we at least listen twice as much as we talk. The famous passage in James says, you must all be quick to listen and slow to speak. But it is tough, right? Maybe it's one of the reasons, the reason I'd love to talk is, is why Mother Teresa, um, uh, there, there's a story from Mother Teresa that I absolutely love when it talks about prayer. Um, she was having, she was being interviewed by Dan Rather on the evening news. I think this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. And Dan Rather said to Mother Teresa, he said, well, what do you, um, what do you say to God when you pray? And she said, well, mostly I just listen. And so Rather got really excited and was like, okay, well, well then what does God, what does God say back to you? And she said, well, mostly he just listens. I love that picture of prayer. Something intimate, something that doesn't have to have words, something that is so connected and, and full of love and communion that you just exist in a space. Friends, I don't think any of us are born great communicators. I think we learn as we go. But I do believe that God has called us to be in deep, regular, constant connection to him through prayer and our prayer may include words it may include groans or moaning maybe it just includes the name Jesus over and over and over again but whenever we pray we can know that the spirit and Jesus intercede for us as God listens to us and through quieting the noise in our souls we may be able to hear God speak in all the ways that he speaks through our friends and through our family and through his word and through a song and through poetry and through uh, um, a clash of thunder or a gentle whisper 
if we could learn to develop a rhythm of life that includes prayer as the first building block to a deep faith, then maybe we could live more sensitive to his voice. Then I think we'd realize that God's actually speaking to us all the time. And sometimes he even uses words. I'm going to close our time today with a prayer that was written by A.W. Tozer in his classic book, The Pursuit of God, written in 1948. Bow your heads with me as I close with this prayer. Lord, teach us to listen. The times are noisy and our ears are weary with the thousand ruckus sounds which continuously assault from without and from within. Give us the spirit of the boy Samuel when he said to you, speak, for your servant is listening. Let us hear you speaking in our hearts. Let us get used to the sound of your voice, that its tones may be familiar when the sounds of the earth die away, so the only sound we hear will be the sweet music of your voice. In the powerful, precious, holy name of Jesus Christ,